Good morning. Hope you got your Bible. If you don't, grab it. If you're using a digital device, then of course you probably already have it in your hand or close by. But if not, go grab a book and open it up. Personally, I like the pages. That's where I'm at. But um, anyway, grab your Bible. We're continuing to work through 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, now we moved on to 12. We got uh, 12 and 13, two chapters left and we'll be done. So I've been working through this series called The Cross-Shaped Life. And uh, the uh, theme that we've used for that is 1 Corinthians 2, 2, where Paul said, For I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we're going to continue that uh, today and for the next few weeks as we finish this up. But just a quick reminder, this is not church. This is just me preaching the word uh, to this glorious video camera. <laughs> um, and tonight's when we'll have church, when we all come together and hang out, there'll be a uh, time of prayer, time of eating food and hanging out and catching up on the week and just seeing how things have been. And um, and then, yeah, we'll lean into the Word. We'll sit down and we'll open it up and we'll dive right into this and talk it through. So love for you to come, love for you to be part of it. Uh, this particular one is a really wild one, so there can be some good discussion on this. So if you want to come anyway, we're in Tempe, Arizona. Uh, hit us up online. We'll tell you how to find where we are exactly. You can find that out through social media, through the website through email, however you want to reach out, do that. So continuing on this cross-shaped life, today we're going to talk about the thorn of seeing heaven, uh, uh, the thorn of seeing heaven. Have you ever thought about what it would be like if you did get to see heaven? You ever thought about that? What, what would it be like if you actually did get to see heaven like now? I don't mean like after you die. I mean like right now. Would you want to come back if you actually did see it? If you actually did get there, in a sense, would you want to come back? And if you had to, how excited would you be about what you've seen? You know what I'm saying? Think about that. How excited would you be about about the things you've seen? Who would you tell about it? Like, think about it right now. Who would be the first person you went and told about it? Your mom, your best friend, your dad, your wife, your husband, your kids. I don't know. Who would be the first person that you wanted to talk about it? Suppose, though, you couldn't say a word about it. Suppose you could say nothing about it. Not only that, but you were being, in a way, harassed for having seen it. Now think about that, because that's exactly what happened with Paul and what we're reading today. So I'm going to go to chapter 12. I'm just going to read a few verses, you know how we do, and then we'll back up and catch more. But I'm going to start in verse 7 here. Paul says, So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations of seeing heaven, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It's amazing, God. And I thank you for the privilege, as always, of being entrusted with it. Um, and I don't mean that as just me sitting here. I mean that as uh, all of us who have your word in our heart and, and hold it in our hand. You're entrusting us with spreading, teaching, equipping others with your word around the world. And I pray, Lord, that you are honored by uh, our efforts to do that. Lord, especially in this time, I pray it's your word that's spoken and not mine. I'm here to learn like anybody else. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there was a book that came out 
years ago. I think it was around 2010. Made a movie, I think, as well. Never saw it, but it was called Heaven is Real. Remember this? Remember this whole phase uh, phase that the world went through talking about uh, this book and this movie got all kinds of popular in, in different circles, even in church circles. And the basic premise of the story, a true quote, true story about a three-year-old boy named Colton Burpo who uh, apparently survived a near-death experience on uh, a surgery table where he had his appendix removed. And his father writes the book um, that became called Heaven is Real, detailing what he told them that he experienced in heaven while he died on the table three months after the event happened. So it's written by his dad. It's chronicling a three-year-old's story months after it actually occurred. And this is what some of the things that he'd said. He talked about an unborn sister that he had, and his mother had, in fact, had uh, a miscarriage in 1998. He gave details of a great-grandfather who died 30 years before he was born. He talked about meeting Jesus, who was riding on a, and I quote, rainbow-colored rainbow horse, sitting on his lap. Uh, he talked about singing angels, angels singing songs directly to him, to the boy. He also saw Mary kneeling at the throne of God. He saw Mary standing beside Jesus at other times, things like this. So is that real? Did that really happen? Did that little boy really see that? If he did, uh, or I'm sorry, is that, first of all, we got to back up and say, before we say that he did, we got to back up and say, does God do that? Does God do that? And then second, if God does do that, what kind of response would you expect from the person that he did it with? What, what kind of response? Here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm coming to with this. Would you be impressed would you be impressed by them if they told you about it? So would you think, wow, how special is this person? How great is this person? Would it impress you? There's something unique and special about this person because of their experience and because of what they've said. And the best question then is, what would it change about, this is key now, what would it change about your life to hear it? What would it change about your life to hear it? And if that did, in fact, change your life, Listen to me carefully. If it did, in fact, change your life to hear that person's experience, if that did change your life, why, why, why did that change your life and not the fact that the king of heaven himself already came, already told all about it for years, died here rose from the dead to confirm that he was in fact the king of heaven, returned there after having made sure that there were those in place that would write it down and document it as eyewitnesses, returned to heaven, and he's presently waiting for your arrival if your faith is in him, in heaven. Why would that not change your life, but some person's experience, that story would change your life? Why would some child's words after flatlining carry more weight than the king of heaven? I'm just saying. And if your faith is not in Jesus, if your faith is not in Jesus, then 
I'm really curious what makes you trust one's experience over another. So if your faith is not in, in Jesus alone, then what makes you trust a kid? Why, why don't you trust it? got to be a 10-year-old, 20-year-old, 50-year-old. Like what are your qualifications for I can trust this person? Sometimes God may give supernatural experiences, okay? So sometimes he may do that. And sometimes he may assign a thorn in our side, so to speak, like Paul's describing, we'll come to it. But in all circumstances, we need to know that he operates in our weaknesses, in our weaknesses for his own glory. And yes, for our ultimate good, but that is to keep us humble and content with him alone. You know what I'm saying? That's that's what Paul's getting at here. He operates in our weakness for his own glory and ultimately, yes, our good. But that good is in keeping us humble and content with him alone. So I'm outlining it this way. You have a supernatural experience that Paul deals with. Then you have the result of that. And then you have the response to that. Okay. And we can pull that upon our own lives in certain ways. So supernatural experience here, verse 1, chapter 12. He says, I must go on boasting. I got to do it. I got to keep going. He's been boasting. He's saying, I got to keep on going. And sarcastically, um, and he says, though there's nothing to be gained by it, basically saying to boast, it appears that it's necessary, but it's not profitable. But I'm going to keep doing it, even though it's gaining nothing. He said, I'm going to go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. What he's saying is Paul's gonna, Paul's saying, I'm gonna go on to the next thing. So I'm boasting about this and this and this. Let me just keep on going. I'm gonna go on and let's talk about, as long as we're boasting on uh, being an apostle, let's go on to visions and revelations, which were things that would qualify an apostle. Remember, he's got these super apostles, he calls them very sarcastically, these false apostles that are condemning him, that are challenging him, challenging his authority. That's who he's dealing with. When he's saying, okay, well, let's go on and talk about visions and revelations. That wasn't an unusual thing for someone who claimed to speak the word of God for them to have visions and revelations. You can go back and look all the way back to the beginning, but you can go to Abraham. Uh, you can go to Ezekiel, Daniel, obviously, Isaiah, all of them. Visions may have been literal, like they may have actually seen something that was there or something that was there and they didn't know it and now they're it's revealed and they see that it's there it could be a dream or imagery um paul had several visions you 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 can go back and look i'm not going to go back through i'll give you a couple but in acts there are six of them detailed and that's just an acts he's he mentions them in some of his other writings too but one example from Acts 16 verse 9 luke records and a vision appeared to paul in the night a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay. Uh, he also, Paul also notes his own salvation was from direct revelation from God. In Galatians 1 verse 12, Paul talking about his salvation, he says, I didn't receive it, the gospel, from any man. Nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. All right. I'm not going to break those things down. You can go look them back up, but you get the point. Paul is saying that that's been in his past. And what he's saying here is that him having this, him having visions and revelations, and particularly the one we're looking at today, it's not new information. It's not new information. And that's the whole point for Paul is <laughs> I am a true apostle. I am a true apostle, but he goes on verse two. He says, I know a man, I know a man in Christ 
who 14 years ago was caught up. That word caught up is harpazo. It means to snatch up or snatch away or to seize away. He says, was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which may, which man may not utter. So is Paul talking about himself here, or is he talking about another person? Uh, there's some debate, but not a lot. Most people are in the same camp here. Some think he's just being humble, and so he's not using his name. I think he's continuing to be sarcastic and not using his name, like he's speaking in quotation marks. I know a guy, you know what I mean? Like we might say, asking for a friend, you know what I mean? <laughs> when we really are talking about ourselves. Definitely, either way though, I believe without a doubt, Paul's talking about himself. And if for no other reason, because in verse 7, we'll get there, but the thorn was given to him in light of his revelations, not some other man in light of some other man's revelations. So, but... Notice that it's also something that's in the past. He says 14 years ago. Clearly, he's never been, never bragged on it, and he's not bragging on it any time in the recent past either because these people would have known about it, but they didn't. He mentions the third heaven here. Um, that would be the place of God's presence. He calls it paradise or Eden, same, same language. It's the place where God dwells. In the beginning, verse 1 of 1, chapter 1 of of uh, Genesis, the very first sentence in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word heavens is a plural word, obviously, even in the Hebrew, it's a plural word. It's saying he created the heavens, plural, and the earth. And not to go too far into this, just a straight quick point, uh, it may, there's three of them. There is the atmosphere, the sky, we might say. There is the second heaven, which is like the stars, outer space, that kind of thing, the the universe. And then there is the third heaven, which is the abode of God, the place where God is, the place where angels are visible, that that kind of thing, where angels dwell in the presence of God. And we do the same thing. I mean, we use heaven interchangeably. We might talk about heaven as the place where God is. We might talk about heaven as a feeling that we have when things are great. We might talk about heaven as being the sky or the stars as well. So, Paul says twice, though, that he was snatched up there. The only other time that that statement, that that word harpazo is used, is also by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, where he talks about believers being harpazo, being snatched, caught up um, at Christ's return, in still yet in the future. Now, that's where the term rapture comes from. Rapture is the Latin word. For harpazo, the Greek word being translated caught up here. I'm not going to run all down that rabbit trail, but I do want to point it out. That's, that's what Paul has in mind here is that same kind of idea that we envision when you hear the term rapture. That's what he's saying's happened to him. And he doesn't know if it was literal there or if it was only spiritual. You know, there's a lot today. There always has been, but today I feel like there's tons of spiritualists and religions out there that claim to offer you this out-of-body experience, you know. Um, are they real? Transcendent meditation and can you leave your body and, you know, go explore the cosmos and then come back? Paul says his circumstances here could have been literal. They may not have been spiritual, ethereal, whatever. He might act, might actually have gone uh, phys- very physically to heaven and then 
come back. He doesn't, he doesn't know. But ultimately, he's illustrating for us how to approach it when people do claim it. He's giving us a good illustration of how to approach it when people do claim it. With Paul, it didn't matter whether it was spiritual or whether it didn't matter. Maybe his body never moved and the environment around him changed. That's what happened with Isaiah in chapter 6 when he's in the temple and God's presence is there all of a sudden. Or maybe he was taken from the environment and you know, caught up, translated physically perhaps into another environment. That's like John in Revelation 4. Either way, it did occur, and here's the key, he told us nothing of it. It did happen, but he told us nothing about it. You know people who like to talk about their spiritual triumphs? Do you listen to people like that? Do you entertain people like that? Maybe you don't know them, but you entertain them. You hear them. You listen to them. Why do you listen to that when you hear them talk about all their spiritual victories and their spiritual triumphs and their spiritual things that God's done for them? What are you hoping to gain from that? With Paul, whatever he did see or hear, it's not to be told. Not even to, Not even a syllable of it. It can Paul say? He's not allowed to say, not even a syllable of it. John had a similar scenario in, Re- in Revelation, Revelation 10, verse 3. It says, and he's talking about an angel. The angel called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So what are the seven thunders and what did they say? Really? Seal it up. Don't write it down. So if we sit here and try to guess what that was or what they said, then we're defining God's word. He told John, hey, you can note that it happened, but don't say a word about what occurred. Why Why would he do that? Why did he do that? That's, see, we're already messing up. We're already messing up. So you have this supernatural experience uh, that, that Paul it, it goes through here. And then you have the result of it. Look at this in verse 5, the result of this supernatural experience. On behalf of this man, I'll add the quotation marks, on behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should want to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think uh, more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul could say of heaven, been there, done that. Paul could say, hey, been there, done that. And Paul says, that man could boast about that. That man could boast about been there and done that. But the Paul who's saying these words to you now will only boast in his weakness. You know, that Paul might could, might could come back and have said that, but the, the Paul in front of you will only boast in his weakness. Why? Because God placed him in that position to be humbly aware of his weakness. God put him in that place. Why? For his good and for the glory of God alone. Paul claims that his sarcastic boasting here is truth. He's claiming that it's the, you know, I, yeah, I'm being a fool and I'm boasting all these sarcastic ways, but it's true. It did occur, but 
Look what he says. He doesn't need to talk the talk because he's been walking the walk and that speaks for itself. He's saying, I'm not going to sit here and brag even if I could about what I saw in heaven or what occurred with heaven or how that happened or what led to it or how I came back or why God did. I'm not even going to talk about any of that. Why? Because I've been walking the walk. I don't have to talk the talk. And not only does Paul refrain from boasting in arrogance here, but God has also given him something to keep him from it. So let's go back here to verse 7. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. That could be the physical body flesh. could be the spiritual sinfulness inside of us that Paul refers to as the flesh. One of those two. Thorn was given to me in the flesh. A messenger, that word messenger is angel, same word, uh, messenger of Satan to harass. That word harass is to beat or punch or strike with a fist. Uh, a messenger or angel from Satan to punch me to keep me from becoming conceited or exalting myself. That's what he means. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it, not he or she, but it, it, the thorn here, should leave me. You know, when I read this or hear this, I often think about Johnny Erickson Tata, and I don't know if you know who uh, she is, but she, you can look her up, there's plenty on, on the woman, but she's quadriplegic for more than 50 years now. Okay, quadriplegic for more than 50 years now. I think 55, I'm not sure how old, since she was 17. But as a believer, she's been that way. As a believer, she's just put your brain around that. As a believer, she has been that way. And I had a friend some years ago that when I addressed that with him, he had, and I'll call it the nerve, to say that she was only in that wheelchair because she had accepted it. By faith, she could get up out of that wheelchair and walk. But she was only in that wheelchair because she's accepted it. Now, I'm not going to address that. Because to me, that's a foolish thing anyway. I'm not going to address that. But I will say it's kind of sickening. These prosperity gospel preachers, the health and wealth crew that say God only wants the best for you at all times. That he wants you to be healthy. He doesn't want you to have struggles. That you have to unlock your blessing. You have to unlock your own blessing. That you have to... Claim your inheritance as a child of God, your right to be recognized as a child of God. And those who are sick, though, see, they're just victims of their own faith failure. Their faith is not where it should be. Their faith is not strong enough, and that's why they're sick. That's why they're crippled. That's why they're dealing with stuff. So then look here. Are we saying here that Paul was a failure? Is that what we're saying? When it came to faith, Paul was a failure. Three times, he said, three times he begged God to take it away. Three times. And Paul said it tormented him. Man, poor old Paul. If he just knew that all he had to do was claim it. If, all he, if somebody would have just told him how to unlock his blessing, don't get me started. I guess stop. <laughs> However, listen to me, no. Has it ever occurred to you, though, that God might assign assign a thorn for your own good. Has it ever occurred to you God might assign a thorn for your own good? How might that change the way you approach it if you could understand that? 
And this is all throughout the Bible. I'll give you two of my favorite verses from Psalm 119. The author, perhaps it was David, we don't know, but it seems like something he would say. But in verse 71, he says, It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Think of our laws. It's good for me that I was afflicted. Uh, backing up a few verses in verse 17, it says, But I was afflicted, before I was afflicted, excuse me, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and you do good, so teach me your word, your statutes. It's good that I was afflicted. You know, uh, Spurgeon wrote this. He said, Paul reckoned his great trial to be a gift. He does not say, there was inflicted upon me a thorn in the flesh. But, he says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. At first, the apostle might not have seen his thorn as a gift, but afterward, he came to see it that way. A thorn is but a little thing and indicates a painful but not a killing trial. That's well said, and so it should be. Spurgeon was the man. So, what's the thorn? Here comes the big question that everybody loves to wrestle with. What's the thorn? Well, some think it was a, a literal thing. Some think it was an emotional thing. Some think it was a spiritual thing. Uh, and when I say some, I'm talking about brilliant scholars all across the board. Uh, e- even the ones that I admire the most and look up to when I'm studying uh, using commentaries and things like that, even they disagree. They, I wouldn't say they disagree, but they have differing opinions. So uh, one is a demon. That's a pretty common one, that it's an actual demon that tormented um, Paul because he says a messenger from Satan, uh, uh, that's an angel from the devil. You know, um, Some say it's a physical deformity that he had, he, that he was short or that he was partially crippled or something like that, or he had some kind of flaw. Some say it was the speech impediment, which he seems to have already made clear he had some kind of speech thing. I don't know. Some say it was the false apostles that he's dealing with, that they were the thorn that was in his side, and he's speaking figuratively of them. Uh, Tony Evans said, A thorn is something or someone that painfully nags or irritates one's humanity in a continuous basis, on a continuous basis. Nobody knows for sure what Paul's thorn is. And it's dangerous to guess at it. Because we're only guessing. So, the point is to find the application of what Paul is meaning when he says it. And rather than explore all the details in an attempt to determine exactly what it is that happened to Paul, we can look at what a thorn from God might look like in our own life. We can look at what a thorn from God might look like in our own life. First of all, none of us have seen heaven, at least as far as I know, none of us have seen heaven and require a thorn in that sense, okay? In that sense. But, regardless of that, becoming conceited, becoming conceited, which he said, is something that many, if not most of us, constantly run a risk of. I'm just saying. And depending on the level of struggle with that, God might apply a thorn in our lives. Might do it. Now, I've often heard people say, uh, spiritual leaders and others say, don't ever ask God to make you humble. You know, and that sounds good. I went with that for a long time. Yeah, man, because I sure don't want whatever suffering or thorn that God might put me through. But just stop and think about that for a minute. Just stop and think about that for a minute. Never ask God to make you humble. Consider what it means to say that. It assumes you have an issue with pride and you're saying, hey, look, Lord, let me handle this. Well, that's a prideful statement. I will humble myself. Prideful statement. Or let me just go on with my pride. We're going to be okay here. Prideful statement. Verse 7, 
Paul starts and ends the same sentence, the same one sentence with to keep me from becoming conceited. He didn't tell us what it was, this thorn, but he sure tells us why he got it twice in the same sentence. Paul sees it as a protection from God. He doesn't like it. He doesn't say he liked it. He asked for it to be gone three times, but he sees it as given from God as a gift. Sometimes the Lord doesn't take it away, man. It's just the way it is. Sometimes the Lord doesn't take it away. But that's not because, oh, you're such a sinner. You're going to have to have this. You're going to have to carry this. As a punishment for your, it's not, it's not, not the case all the time. It's not because of really any reason here, if we're going off this text, other than our own good. For our own good, he's protecting us from what we could become if he didn't put it there. And sometimes it's just about him and it's not about you and that's as far as it goes. Just saying. Also notice, by the way, this is a heavy one, but it's here, so we need to look at it. Notice it came from God, but the application of this thorn is at the hand of Satan. Does God do that? One name ought to pop right into your head. God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? You know, Job chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he, Job, is in your hands, only spare his life. You know, Matthew chapter 4, if you think that, well, that's a once, you know, well, that's Paul and that's Job. Hey, look, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus, Jesus, God's own son, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit of God led the Son of God to face the devil directly in the wilderness. So, it is in God's hands, but we interact, he interacts our lives with the enemy. The difference, though, is the expected result, the outcome of that action. The devil came to steal, kill, and destroy. The Lord came that we may have life and have it more abundantly. So the same thorn might be in our life, the same one appearing to be in the hand of both. But when it's given from the Lord, the ultimate purpose of that thorn is life and life more abundantly, quality life. Notice that Paul doesn't attack the devil either. Paul doesn't say, I rebuke you, devil. He doesn't claim authority over the devil. He doesn't, uh, you know, say, you have no power over me. In fact, just the opposite. Satan did have power over Paul. Satan did have some authority here in that area because, hold on, because it came from God. So, Paul then goes to the top authority. He goes to God and he begs, not claims or demands, begs three times. Who else pleaded with God three times when facing torment, particularly from the devil in some ways? But God didn't let him out of it. Jesus, right? In the garden, take this cup from me, right? Supernatural experience, the result, we just talked about it, and here's the response, really quickly, verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. I love that. Reside in, dwell in, live in, find itself at home in me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. I delight. I'm well pleased. I Think about that now. I delight. I'm well pleased with weakness. Insults, that means like personal damage, somebody doing damage to you personally, your credibility and whatnot. Insults, hardships, that would be like trouble or pressure or being in need. 
And then he says, persecutions, know what that is, calamities, that would be difficult, difficulties like being surrounded by enemies, being in a hopeless situation, being trapped. He said, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Man, I love that. Most people hate being dependent on anybody. It's a fact. That's one reason why teenagers want independence, why the elderly feel like they don't want to be a burden to their children when they get older and, and become dependent upon them. But we will never, listen to me, never, ever, ever grow to a place that we are strong enough to be independent of God. And death is a constant reminder of that. Death is a constant reminder of that. And as we grow older in our faith, though, the temptation to feel proud or entitled, to, to, to be without the need of God's intervention directly, you know, that temptation, it grows really strong. But Jesus' power is displayed in our weakness, not in our strength. In our weakness. So how do we boast in weakness? He's got more boast. How do you boast in weakness? Well, it's an oxymoron. Paul can't even boast in being humble because God caused that too with the thorn. His power is perfect or complete. That's what that means. Complete in weakness. It's not in my weakness. He said it's complete in weakness. So it's universal. It's for all of us. It's not just Paul. It's not just Dave. It's God's power. Christ's power is complete in our weakness. It's not about you learning how to do it with God's help. That, that's not it. It's his power resting, Paul said, or finding a home in you because of your weakness. Because look, whatever your power is doesn't need God's power to help. Know what I'm saying? It won't require God's power if it's something that's within your power to do. Notice that Paul's conclusion here is that he is therefore content. Listen to me on this one. Wow, right? How can he be content in those scenarios? He says, for the sake of Christ. That means he's choosing to be. For the sake of Christ, he's choosing to be content. Contentment is a decision. Don't feel like it a lot of times. I get it. But it is a decision. It's choosing contentment. And Paul says, even in weakness, that would be dependency, right? Even in weakness, even in insults, even in hardships, even in persecutions, even in calamities, even in those, he's choosing to be content. There's a great application here, by the way, regarding prayer with Paul. Notice Paul was persistent, but he also reached a point of acceptance. He asked three times, pleaded three times, but he reaches a point of acceptance. Notice that Paul turned to God only. Notice that Paul sincerely pleaded with God for the desire of his heart. He was sincere and he was saying, pleading with him for the desire of his heart. But ultimately, he left the answer to God and accepted it rather than believe that he himself was somehow lacking enough faith to fix it. He accepted that God had a purpose in it, and that was the answer to his pleading in prayer. Listen to me. He accepted that God had a purpose in it, and that was the answer to his pleading in prayer. And that was not the only answer. He was also given something else here. Grace. Grace that was sufficient, God said, and power in his weakness. Grace is something supernatural from God that reminds us that God is good and that he loves us unconditionally. 
constant reminder of that. That's what grace is. It's a constant reminder. He's good. He loves us unconditionally. It reminds us that though we were sinners, Christ died for us. It reminds us of that moment on the cross as Jesus is dying, nailed to a piece of wood, where he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That no matter how tough it gets, those thoughts come into our mind and grace is sufficient. He says, present tense, my grace is sufficient at all times. At all times, he is always present with all sufficiency. Not to free us from suffering, but to remind us in the suffering that his plan is good because he loves us. Paul realized that when he's weak, that's when the power of Christ is strong in him. Therefore, that's where he wants to live. Notice the one other key word here. He says, when he is weak. It's also a choice to be weak. Not to say that, you know what, I'm naturally strong, but I'm going to make a decision to humble myself and be weak. No, no, no. It's recognizing your weakness and becoming content in it. It's up to us to accept our weaknesses, to confess our weaknesses to the Lord, and to allow God to use us in them rather than fight to be free of them. Our strength then will reflect that Christ is in us, right? So how do we respond to this? Well, look, take a look at your life first of all. Take a look at your life. Stop and just look back over your life. Is there a point in your life where you can say, man, God was very active in my life at this point in time. Maybe it was uh, healing. Maybe something miraculous happened even, something supernatural. Maybe there was a healing involved. Maybe there was some kind of guiding on his part in your life that was seemingly supernatural, but it was supernatural. I don't know. Maybe it's a, a time where you had a dream or a vision of some kind. Was it affirmed by his word, first of all? If you're going to go there, make sure it's affirmed by his word. All right? But then how did you respond to it at the time? How did you respond to it at the time? And then now, is it, or how is it, affecting the way you live presently? Maybe it's time to remember to be content in whatever you're dealing with right now. Maybe it's time to go back and remember. If you're already feeling like there's a thorn in your life, maybe you already feel like that's the case and that's the way it is, the most important thing you can do is remember that nothing happens outside of God's sovereignty and ask Him for freedom. But learn to accept that God may have assigned it for you. Listen to me. If you can learn that, you're going to learn to become content in the worst of situations. I'm telling you. Now, I don't know if you've thought about heaven. Maybe you're somebody who's never, you know, never thought past the word being a perfect place. You know, maybe it's a wonderland to you. I don't know. Maybe you've never thought about it. Maybe you never had any kind of supernatural experience at all. But I can assure you, listen to me, that heaven is real. But not because some three-year-old went there and had some vision about it. But because I know the one who came from there. Who lived here, died here, rose from a grave here, and returned there to heaven. And it's that same one who's opened up hope. It's the same one Jesus, who's opened up the opportunity for us to be there, to be in heaven. It's his grace that's made salvation possible. That's what the cross is about. I want to challenge you today to give your life to him, to recognize that, yes, I am a sinner. To recognize that he did die for you on that cross. To recognize that he 
purchased life for you through his blood on that cross and that he came out of a grave to guarantee that you have it. And that he's now in heaven and the king of heaven who stands ready to welcome you if you give your life to him. Do it today. Let us know you did it. Let me pray for you. Lord, I love you. I love your word. And I pray, God, that you continue to be glorified in it and through it in my life, in our lives, and in the lives of any who may have responded today. I pray, Lord, that they would reach out to us or find a good church that loves you and knows how to make disciples of you through your word. Ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.